invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 4. We've finished our little mini-series on the rapture, um, speaking of some different theories, why we believe what we believe. I certainly didn't cover them all. I mentioned last week we didn't cover all millennialism. I did not mention post-millennialism either. We'll come back to these and talk about them a little bit more when we get to the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, and talk about some of those elements of the kingdom age and uh, its distinctives. We were more focusing in on, of course, the rapture, which we believe takes place before the 70th week of Daniel, uh, which we believe uh, takes place before uh, the tribulation that is to come, and defending our position uh, in the context of the other positions, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib rapture theories, all of which are in what we would call premillennialism. So those are the ones that are generally within our framework of reference, and we spoke of why it is we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture theory. This week we're going to get back into the text, moving into prophecy proper, if you will, as it relates to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we talked about how it is possible that chapters 2 and 3 are prophetic. Those were the chapters on the church, right? And we said how it's possible that those are prophetic. Uh, I gave one message to that, uh, but we dedicated seven messages to the churches themselves and talking about uh, the churches, their character, and how we can learn from them, understanding that primarily speaking, we recognize chapters 2 and 3 to be speaking about this age, the church age, and then giving way to the age that is to come. As we step into chapter 4, we are most certainly dealing with prophetic revelation. That being said, however, as we've mar- remarked on any number of occasions... The focus of the text, as we're going to see it today, and you're going to see this very clearly as we walk through two whole chapters of Scripture, Revelation 4 and 5, the focus of the text is not, again, on what is going to happen. It's on who? It's on the person of whom and for whom these things are taking place. We studied this morning in our Sunday school hour in Ephesians that that God has predestinated us unto the adoption of sons, that he has set us aside unto his purposes, that we are to be to the praise of the glory of, of, of his grace, that in the ages to come we might show the, the glory of God. And this is the age, we're studying the age that is to come. We're studying the time when Jesus Christ will be ultimately glorified. And so we're going to study about Jesus Christ today. The only worthy judge, the Lamb who is worthy. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground, as you've seen. So let's dig in this morning. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says this. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be hereafter. Now, the vision of Jesus and his words to the seven churches is now over. Try to reorient you to our context here. John looks and he sees a door open in the heaven. He's going to hear several voices throughout this vision. And he says the first voice that he hears is as the voice of a trumpet talking with him. This description is the same as the description that John gave in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 where he said that there was a voice as of a trumpet that spoke to him. And this was Jesus' voice. If we recall, right, he turned around and Jesus was there. In the Old Testament, we also hear about this idea of a voice of a trumpet. And every time we hear a voice of a trumpet in the Old Testament, it is speaking of God. To this end, there is no other, t- other voice in the scriptures, in, the, in the, the, um, revelation, the scope of biblical re- revelation has been given to us that is attributed to a trumpet, save the voice of God himself. To this end, as John hears the voice as of a trumpet saying, come up hither and I will show these things which will come hereafter, we would believe this to be the voice of God himself. The voice of the Father on the throne, which we'll see in a moment, calling him up, to see the things that will come to pass hereafter. And he says this specifically to John, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And I say this because within our camp, particularly as it relates to the rapture, there are some who who attribute this moment as the rapture moment. They say, see, there's the sound of a trumpet, right? The voices of a trumpet. 
and then there's this call, come up hither. And so they say, this is the rapture, and they put it between the church age in Revelation 2 and 3, and then the things that shall be hereafter in Revelation 4 and following, and that sound of the trumpet, the voice of the trumpet, and the come up hither, that's the rapture. Um, I think that that's pretty shaky ground, uh, doctrinally and interpret interpretively. I think there is a lot within Revelation 4 and 5 that lends us to the idea that the church is already there in John's vision, that John is seeing the church, that we still, of course, we've, we've laid the foundation for why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. But I do not like this argument. And if, uh, if you uh, ever seek to convince somebody, I think that this is probably an argument that you should not use, that Revelation 4, verse 1 speaks of a, uh, a trumpet and a call. Why? Because the voice of the, uh, of the, the trumpet, the, the, the voice as a trumpet we see it in Revelation 1. We see it in the Old Testament. This is the voice of God. This is what God sounds like to man when God speaks to man uh, in, in the divine way. And so this is not an exclusive event, such as the last trump, as Paul taught it in, in regard to the rapture. Secondly, this, the, the message does not stop it, come up hither, does it? The message is, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. That's the quote, Right? So to say that come up hither is the rapture, uh, is that, that's not what's happening here. This is, this is a voice from heaven calling John to come up in spirit and to see something that's going to happen hereafter. So I think it's a pretty bad argument. I would not encourage you to use that one. I think that it does damage to proper interpretation contextually if we try to do that. So John is called up by this voice, which we would presume to be the voice of God because nowhere else in Scripture does a voice as of the sound of a trumpet uh, is it attributed to anyone other than one of the three persons of the Trinity. And this is going to be confirmed as we continue to study. So we read in verses 2 and 3, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat uh, was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So John is called into the heaven and he specifically mentions uh, that, when, that he was there in spirit, right? He was there uh, uh, in, a, in a sort of a, 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 in a, a, a spiritual way. It's not a bodily vision, but a spiritual vision. He is in spirit, brought into the spirit realm and brought into the throne of heaven. And what John saw when he sees this throne room is a throne and one sitting on the throne. Now we know implicitly that this is God. There is none other than God that sits on the throne in the heavenlies, right? We're going to see explicitly that it's God in a minute. But implicitly, we, we already assume that this is God because there's something on the throne in the heavenlies and God is who sits on the throne in the heavenlies. And John attempts to describe this one sitting on the throne. He says that to look upon the one who sat upon the throne was like looking at jasper and sardine stones. And then he says there was a rainbow round about the throne that was like an emerald. So let's establish the context for this vision. We see three stones here. The first two are said to dominate the eye when looking at the throne itself. The third, that it envelops the throne. Jasper and sardine are red stones. They're fiery in their brightness. And this is the intended idea here. That to look upon the throne, John doesn't describe an image. He doesn't see a likeness of a man. God is a spirit. God uh, is not interested in any graven image being made of him. He's not interested in men knowing uh, his person. He is a spirit. He saw no outline. He saw no form. He saw only beauty and brightness. He saw a throne, and then he saw radiating out of this throne a fiery red brightness, a flaming brightness. And then round about the throne, John sees a rainbow, but not a multicolored rainbow as we would see in the sky after a rain. Rather, the rainbow is like unto an emerald. It's a vibrant green stone, the color of which surrounded the throne. So we can envision the throne and then emanating from this throne is a fiery red, bright light. And then surrounding in an aura around that is a, a bright, vibrant green. We continue the description in verses 4 through 11. 
And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne... Uh, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth and uh, forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So here we find a full description of the environment within which John found himself as he was carried in the Spirit to the throne of God to see the things that would surely come to pass hereafter. And as before, I am going to give you a visual of this. I gave you a visual in Revelation chapter 1 of the vision of Jesus as, as he had uh, the, the, the stars in his right hand and, and surrounded by the candlesticks and the eyes flaming of fire and the feet of, of, of fiery brass and the garment of white and all of those things. And I gave you a, a picture of this and I'm going to do the same, but I'm going to give it to you with the same caveat. As we do so, recognize that these are artist impressions. What I look for when I try to give you one of these is the most literal, not the most, not the most um, natural, but the most literal. Because it's not about, I, I, I don't want to sear an image into your head of what these things are. The point is actually not the image. The point is the representation. The point is what, what, what these things are attempting to direct us unto. It's the same when we talked about Ezekiel. That was several years ago. And you see Ezekiel's vision of the wheels and the wheels and the wheels with eyes everywhere and, and all of these things that Ezekiel was seeing. What are we seeing there? We're seeing something and it's telling us something, but the point of Ezekiel's vision was the glory of God. And the point of this vision is very clearly the glory and the worth of God. And so don't lose sight of the point. And I also hope that this isn't going to sear into your mind a definitive, this is what it looks like, because it, it's not what this picture is for. This picture is to help us understand everything that we're seeing here. So as we take John literally, as literally as we can, we're going to put together a picture Remembering that prophetically, some of the things John is seeing are actually very symbolic. And he'll even explain many of those uh, symbolisms for us. So, what, what do we see here? John sees a throne. And coming out of that, that, that throne is a red light. Unfortunately, there is no perfect picture. If I was an artist, I'd make one myself. There's a, a, a throne there. It almost looks like a semblance of a man, but uh, it's so far back that we'll just call it a throne. There would not have been a semblance of a man on that throne. He sees the red in front of him. Surrounding this throne are the seven flames, which represent the seven spirits of God. This emerald rainbow emanating from the throne. The 24 elders in their seats with crowns of gold that are sitting around the throne. He sees the throne in front of it, a sea of glass that John likens to crystal. Near the throne, round about them, are four beasts. These beasts have eyes all over the place, eyes everywhere, in front and behind. First beast has a face like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, the fourth like an eagle. Each of these beasts has six wings, John describes them as resting not day or night. So they see everything. They don't rest. They've got six wings. Generally speaking, wings uh, uh, imply speed or, or swiftness in prophecy. And they perpetually cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. 
which was and is and is to come. Now, this validates our understanding of who it is on the throne, right? There's no question now it's God. Before we assumed it's God because there was something on a throne. Now we know it's God because they're saying, Lord God Almighty, and calling Him holy. And each time He would cry, these 24 elders would fall down upon the ground and they'd worship and they'd cast their crowns at His feet. The rewards that they were given, they are throwing at the feet of the Lord, for He is worthy. It is, they, they, they have these rewards, but God is worthy of these rewards. Thou art worthy, they say, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So this is the message of the 24 elders, and this is the cry that is going forth from them. It's time to draw a few biblical links before we, we put all of this together here. The description of these beasts that are flying around the throne relates very closely to a couple other portions of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, Isaiah writing, the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, that's two, he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in Isaiah 6, we find a vision of a Lord sitting upon his throne as well. This is Isaiah's call to ministry. And within the call of ministry, uh, Isaiah sees this vision. And in this vision, there are these beasts. He calls them seraphims. The word seraphim literally means burning ones. So they are bright. They are emanating with glory and with light. Um, we consider this today to be a certain class of angelic being. Uh, and yet, as we understand it, we recognize that these aren't messengers, as angels would imply, to man. These are beasts, beings created solely to declare God's glory around his throne. And so these seraphims had six wings. With two, he was covering his face. With two, they were covering their feet, and with two they were flying. And then they were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Very similar in description to what we see in Revelation, is it not? They had six wings. Now the uniqueness being that because they covered their faces, Isaiah could not tell us whether one had a face like an eagle and one had a face like a man and one had a face like a calf and one had a face like a lion because they had their faces covered and could not tell us what their feet may have looked like because their feet were covered as well and with only two of their wings they were flying they were covered the rest of the way but they were crying the same message effectively there's a, a slight difference at the end of the message but they were crying around the throne holy 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 then I take you to Ezekiel's vision now uh, we're not going to again cover all of Ezekiel's vision it's a really interesting vision but in Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 4 through 14 we read this Ezekiel writes, this is his call. He says, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings, on their four sides, and they had and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they, had, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion um, on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. And they four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined, one to another, and two covered their bodies. And they went, everyone straight forward. Whither the Spirit was to go, they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures ran 
and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. What a vision, huh? He sees these creatures. And these creatures are slightly different, some distinctives here. Each one of these beasts had four faces. And the four faces that each one of these beasts had are the same four faces that John saw. The face of a lion and the face of a calf or an ox and the face of an eagle and the face of a man. Except each one of these creatures had all four faces, presumably one on each side because they didn't turn. Right? They didn't turn when they went. They moved um, uh, and went straight in every direction. So they didn't have to turn. They had a face on each side. They had eyes on each side. Ezekiel also sees with these beasts that they only had four wings. And two of the wings were connected together and two of the wings um, were not. Uh, they, were, they were covering themselves. So we, we have some slight differences here. Ezekiel describes them as bright, right? Bright as fire, as um, burning coals of fire, uh, burning ones, right? I believe here, though there are some slight differences, that we're seeing the same creatures. Now John, when he sees them in Revelation, he only sees one of their faces apiece. But that doesn't mean they don't have more faces. Ezekiel, when he's looking in Ezekiel chapter 1, he sees all four faces, but he only sees four wings. So that doesn't mean they don't have six wings. It means they're only using four of their wings. Isaiah, when he sees these creatures, he sees the six wings. He doesn't see their feet, so he doesn't know if they have calves' feet because their feet are covered. And then he doesn't see what their faces look like because their faces are covered. But they have the six wings and they're burning like Ezekiel's beasts were burning. I think we're probably looking at the same creature in all of these. That as God ushers him, his presence, man before his presence, he is always accompanied by these seraphim, these four burning ones who are perpetually declaring his glory. Now the final question before we inspect the content of the elders' cry, which is really what matters here, is the question about these 24 elders. Who are they? What do they represent? As always in prophecy, as a matter of course, when you see numbers, you should at least inspect those numbers. Here we have 24 elders. We know that 12 is a very important number in Scripture, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 foundations, 12 uh, uh, city gates in in the New Jerusalem. Uh, 24 is, of course, 12 times 2. We know that there were 24 orders of the priesthood as ordained by Moses, so that number is there. I know of no other definitive links, and so to this point I don't really know of a numerical purpose or numerical significance to it. More importantly, however, is the question, who are these people? And we would believe that these 24 elders represent the church. And that for two reasons. First, these Elders have crowns, which indicates that they have already been judged and they've already received rewards. The scriptures speak of crowns as the rewards of righteousness. When we see the promises of crowns, those promises of crowns are crowns that are given to us on the day of judgment. These elders already have crowns. Presumably, they have already been judged and they've already received their rewards. This would imply that as John sees the hereafter, the first thing that he sees is the church in the heavenlies. Once again, lending itself to the conclusion that the church has been raptured. The church has already been given their rewards. We've already faced the Bema seat. We have already been raptured. That's what we would draw by implication here. Again, this is not definitively stated. This is just implication. Second, we see that they're singing a song. And this song, as it's related to us in the King James Version, strongly lends us to the understanding that this is the church. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get there um, because there is a a second theory and that second theory is based upon other translations of the Bible that these 24 are also created beings, an angelic being of some sort, like the seraphim, created specifically to worship God. And when you see how this passage, Revelation 5, is translated in other versions of the Bible, you'll see perhaps why it is They believe this. So continuing on here, uh, in verse 11, we see this message that is proclaimed by these 24 elders. And the message, Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. All of our considerations need to be in their proper place. I give you these pictures, and I, we describe the, 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 the glory and the majesty and the beast and all that. Okay, whatever. The point is, they are worshiping God. The point is that around the throne of God are those that are crying out that God is worthy, that he has created all things for his pleasure they're created, that he is worthy of, of glory and honor and power. This is the point. This is the direction. This is the reason why. All of that beauty and all of that splendor is to just point us to the fact that God is God. That he's worthy of glory and honor and power. To extol God. If I were to go home and create a beautiful armchair. That creation is now mine to do with what I will, right? I created it. I have every right to sell it because I created it. I have every right to keep it. I created it. I have every right to smash it to bits. I created it. The declaration is simply extolling the reality. As we step into the hereafter, as we step into the things that are to come, as the seals are broken and the trumpets are, are, are played and the vials are poured out and we see horrible, terrible, awful judgments poured out upon the earth, it begins in the hereafter with this declaration. Thou art worthy, Lord. You created it. You created it for your pleasure. Which means God can do what he wants with it. It's his. This is setting our minds and our hearts for the context. Continuing in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So John looks, and in the right hand of the one that is on the throne. So we have the first time that we have some sort of anthropomorphic idea to this one that's on the throne, right? That there's a hand there. And he looks and he sees on the throne, what the King James Version calls a book would have actually been a scroll and written on both sides of this scroll, sealed with seven seals, is writings. John doesn't know what those writings are. No one knows what those writings are. These would be wax seals, like you would find on an envelope or, or whatever the case may be. Usually we don't use wax seals anymore. Usually if an envelope is sealed with anything, it's with a sticker nowadays, right? Some sort of sticker that you'd put on the envelope, maybe to make sure that the top doesn't catch or, or whatever the case may be. But in, in days gone by, they would take wax, they would put it on that envelope or on that scroll, they would seal it in that manner to keep it closed and then perhaps put an impression, an emblem on that seal in order to show ownership or to show by whom it was written or by what authority this message is being um, um, given. So there are seven of those types of seals on this scroll and no one's worthy to break the seals. You go through and you pop each one of those seals. No one is worthy to do it. And for this, John is sorrowful. John begins to weep because no man is found worthy to open and read this book. This is the revelation of God. This is the will of God. This is in the hand of God Almighty. John wants to know what it is. The whole, the, the whole of creation craves to know the word of God, but this book is sealed up. But one of the elders, one of these 24 elders who had been on the ground casting his crowns before the Lord and calling out that he's worthy to receive power and glory and honor, looks at him and says, don't weep because there is one that's worthy. And he calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. He calls him the root of David. And this introduces us to a new character. And he establishes that this new character, this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, is worthy to open the book, is worthy to break the seals, is worthy to read the book. So now it's time to learn more about this one 
verses uh, verses 6 and 7. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now we might assume that as the elder spake to John, saying that the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David was worthy to open the book, he was pointing perhaps to to someone or something. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. John looks and in the midst of the throne, so we have the beast around the throne, we have the emerald that's emanating from the throne, and near that throne, he says there's a lamb. And that lamb bears the marks of having been killed, having been slain. And he has seven horns and seven eyes, which John says are the seven spirits of God. Again, we've talked about that before, the seven spirits of God being the Holy Spirit, given the divine number seven of perfection and completion. It's the same as the lamps that were around the throne, right, were the seven spirits of God, showing that, that the Father had with him the Spirit of God, and now the Son has with him, the Lamb has with him the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is upon this Lamb, and so we see the Trinity, The Father, the Son, the Spirit of God. This slain lamb approaches and he takes the book. By this we know that the slain lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the root of David, right? We know that the lamb that was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the root of David, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the root of David, is worthy to take the book, and the lamb is the one that's taking the book. So it's kind of interesting, right? That the elder would say the lion of the tribe of Judah and he points and there's a lamb. (laughs) But notice the distinction here. The elder calls Jesus by his Jewish significance, his messianic significance, and then points to Jesus in his Christological, church ecclesiological significance. He's all things. He is the Messiah of Israel, he is the Lamb of the church. It is one and the same. He is the Savior. In a moment, we'll see what makes the Lamb worthy. But do note this relationship. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is that one that Israel longs for and seeks. But he's also the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Right? Verses 5 through 10. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. This is the song they sing, a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made unto us our God kings, has made us unto our God, excuse me, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. When the Lamb, who is the root of David, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, takes the book, immediately the four beasts and the 24 elders fall down and worship him. Now, throughout Scripture, what we see, we see it in Daniel, we'll see it here in Revelation, is that when anything tries to worship anything other than God, uh, they are forbidden to do so. They're falling down in front of the Lamb because the Lamb is God, part of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So they worshipped Him, and the Bible says they worshipped Him with music, with harps, and they worshipped Him with the golden vials of odors. That would be the prayers of the saints, John describes here. So they worship him with singing and with prayer. So now the song and the prayers of God's people flood the throne room and declare God's greatness, and they sung a new song. Now this song is the thrust of a disagreement. First, about who these elders may be, as we've mentioned already, and second, about who's singing this new song. And the disagreement comes down to a small change that creates a major difference between the Greek text that underlies the King James Version of the Bible, the Textus Receptus, and the critical text, which underlies all newer translations of the Bible. And take a look at the comparison of the song 
between the King James Bible and between the English Standard Version. I'm sorry, it's a little small there. Smaller than usual, at least. So in, in the King James, the Bible says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God. And I've, I've bolded and underlined the differences here. By the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. Now, consider the English standard. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, there's a few differences I didn't explicitly mark here. Made them a kingdom instead of made them kings, right, is here. And then... Uh, ransomed instead of redeemed. Those are just slight translational differences. The words behind them in the Greek are the same. But what I want to highlight here are these changes that come in the Greek. In the Greek, between these two manuscripts, every word is the exact same except for one word that the critical text removes. In verse 9 here, the, verse, or the word us. That word is removed from the critical text that undergirds modern translations. And I've got to say it's a really, really interesting omission here. I'm going to park on this for a minute. New versions don't put into italics the things that they, they when they add something translationally, they don't put it in italics like the King James did. Thank God for the transparency of the King James translators who put into italics the things, no matter how justified, that they added to the text, whether for clarity or whatever the case may be. That doesn't happen in new versions. You notice that the word us was replaced with people in the English standard, but there's actually no word people there. there there's nothing. They, they take out the word us and they don't replace it in the critical text with anything. And I find this really, really curious, and I'm going to explain why. And in order to do so, I'm going to give you a little bit of a grammar lesson. See, new translations should actually read, if, if they took out the, the, the additional word, and again, it's not wrong to have the word in there, but if you take out that word, the new translation translations based upon the critical text read this way. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What's missing here that's actually quite important linguistically is a direct object. There are two types of verbs in English as well as in Greek. Transitive verbs and intransitive verbs. If you know a little bit about grammar, you know that there are transitive verbs and intransitive verbs. Stay with me here. Transitive verbs need an object in order for the verb to make sense. I can't just say, I gave, unless we're talking in a conversation about something. If, if I have a check and my wife knows that I'm going to be putting that check in, the, in, in the, the box at church, then we're driving home. She says, did you give? Yeah, I gave. We're not actually, that's not a sentence though, right? She's assuming that I know that the direct object to gave is, did you give the money to the church? The money, right? That there is an object that complements that verb, and it has to because that verb is a transitive verb. It must have a direct object in order to make sense. I gave is not, doesn't make sense in and of itself. I gave a pizza. Now that makes sense, and it sounds pretty good. I can't just say he sent. He sent. He sent makes no sense. He sent money for the pizza. That makes sense. Transitive verbs must have a direct object and oftentimes have an indirect object as well. I gave a pizza to Bob. There's our indirect object, right? Pizza's the direct object. Bob is the indirect object. Direct object uh, is, is the what. Direct ob uh, indirect object is to or for whom. He sent money to his friend. Money is the direct object. Friend is the indirect object. Then we have intransitive verbs. Intransitive verbs do not need an object. I work. I work. I work hard. There's no direct object there. There's no indirect object there. It doesn't need one. The match starts in an hour. 
The match starts in an hour. No direct object, doesn't need one. We talked for hours, doesn't need a direct object. These don't have a to whom or a for whom. They don't have an object that they require. They're intransitive verbs. Now, we consider the verb in question here. Redeemed, ransomed. The two different translations give it this way. The Greek word literally means to buy or to sell or to redeem. It's very, very clear that there's an indirect object here, right? You ransomed for God or to God. Redeemed to God for God. There's an indirect object. But if you take out the us, there's no direct object to this to the sentence. The critical text took out the direct object and did not replace it with anything. And not only that, but in the context, you don't really see a clear direct object implied, which is important. Because if you're not going to add a direct object, like my wife and I in a conversation, did you give? I gave. There has to be an implied direct object that both of us understand or else we're not communicating anything. And when it's in writing, it's even more important to communicate. And the direct object is missing and it's not replaced. The word is supplied. The direct object is supplied by the translation, people. It has to be there or else it makes no sense. But that word is not in the critical Greek text. There's nothing in the critical Greek text. They just take out the object. Now, grammatically, is this possible? Yes. Like I just explained to you, by implication, I can say I gave, and as long as everyone knows what we're talking about, that's valid linguistically. But here it seems real, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Verse 10 is more clear. They actually did make the changes they needed to make here. Between the translations, the us is changed to them in order to make the other words agree. But I have a fundamental problem believing the unnatural way that the critical text reads in verse 9. And we do believe at Legacy Baptist Church that the critical text uh, has corruptions in it. And I believe that we're seeing here a clear one, a clear shortcoming. A transitive verb missing the direct object is not necessarily uncommon, but its absence is very unnatural grammatically. This being said, it is for this reason that some believe that these are not church elders, that, this is not, that these elders are not the church. They don't represent the church because if you read it in the English Standard or in, or in modern versions that translate out of a different Greek text, the ones singing are not singing about themselves anymore, are they? They're singing about some people that have been redeemed, not them. They're singing about people out of every nation and tribe, but not us. It's not us, but we read our King James Version and we see us. He's redeemed us to God. He has made us kings and priests and we will reign with him on the earth. Testifying without controversy within our Bibles that these are representatives of the church themselves, those who have been redeemed unto God. Lending strong support again to the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture theory. And it's little things like this that remind us just how much this does matter. Yes, major doctrinal distinctions are generally maintained in the critical text and the translations that come out of it. But so many small changes fundamentally alter nuanced arguments that speak for or against certain doctrinal differences. And to this end, I believe it does matter what text we use. That's why we state here it does matter what text we use. Because these Bibles do say different things, don't they? These two Bibles say different things. And not only is that confusing, but it also absolutely destroys the credibility of the Word of God. Which one do I believe? Does it matter? They say different things. I will draw two entirely different interpretive conclusions based upon which one I'm reading. These changes do fundamentally alter the meaning of the text, change how we understand the doctrines and the passages that we read here. Back to the context. Verses, we were in verses 5 through 10. So these elders proclaim that the Lamb has redeemed them out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and that the Lamb has made them kings and priests unto God. And they rejoiced that they themselves would reign on the earth. Speaking of the millennial kingdom, that is to come. And that's an important one when we talk about premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. 
This is the hereafter. They're looking forward to reigning on the earth. Hasn't happened yet. For this reason, they say, the Lamb is worthy to open the book. Whatever the book contains, Jesus has earned the right to open and to declare it through his redemptive work on the cross. So that throughout all of these judgments that will pass upon the world, anyone reading or anyone going through it one day who might say, what gives God the right to destroy? What gives God the right to bring these things upon the earth? What gives God the right is that he has purchased the right with his own blood. What gives God the right is that Jesus is not going to judge the world without having first given his life to spare the world from that judgment. That every ounce of judgment that the world will come under and every single person that will feel the wrath of God in that time will feel it not because they didn't have a chance, not because God did not love them, not because God had implicitly rejected them, but because they had rejected God. They've rejected His mercy. They've rejected His calls. They've rejected His desire. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so He is worthy. He is just. He is righteous. He has gone out of His way to His, to, to his very death to, to make provision so that no one has to go through what Revelation is teaching. But He will not force us. He will not compel us. Love is a choice. Love must be a choice. If it's compelled, it's not love any longer. It's obeisance. It's obedience, but it's not love. Love must be a choice. So the Lamb is worthy. What's the point of the scrolls and seals? What's the point of the judgments that are to come? Verses 11 and 12. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels. This is after the song. Round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So the elders sang their song and then 10,000 times 10,000 angels and thousands of thousands, a whole host of those who have not actually experienced the redemption that comes. Only mankind has experienced the redemption of the Lamb. But these angels still recognizing the things which the angels desire to look into, right? That Peter tells us about. They cry after the elders on the heel of the elders who cried this personal message this personal message of redemption the angels cry and the lamb is worthy and he's worthy because he was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory all of these descriptors of that which Christ is to receive this is what the book is about this is what revelation of Jesus Christ is about it's about his worth it's about the things that he's going to do because he's worthy. It's about him opening this book. It's about him breaking these seals and pouring out that which he is worthy to do in his justice. That's what we're studying this series. We're studying Christ's path to final victory, his final vindication, his glory, his honor, and for our place in it, that we will reign with him as kings and priests because we've accepted Christ as our Savior. So we conclude in verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Every creature responds to this declaration in kind. Every creature it, within this vision, right, is crying out and saying that he is worthy to open the book, that he is worthy of honor and glory. Two things are performed in these two chapters which are very important for us to understand and then we'll apply. First, we see that these chapters are the point of the tribulation period as we've mentioned, right? This is the point the heavenly point, we are reading about things 
that are a direct means by which God has ordained Jesus Christ to receive all the glory and, and exaltation by these judgments because of what he submitted to on the cross. Don't let this pass you by. This is why the world will go through what it's going through. This is why Israel will go through what it will go through. Once again, no functional purpose for the church in it. This is why, for Christ's glory, he's earned it with his blood on the cross. Second, we do see a a clear time marker here. That this is the time where Jesus completes his work. That as we've studied Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians that recount the reality that Jesus is humility and his suffering give way to his exaltation and glory, what Revelation 4 and 5 tell us is that this is the time where all of that stuff comes to pass. Where this is the time for Jesus to receive that glory. And this is how he's going to do it. So let's apply this morning three points of application to Revelation 4 and 5 as we close. Point number one, only Christ is worthy to save. Only Christ is worthy to save. No one else has died for the sins of mankind. No one else rose again in victory over the grave. A comparison between the truth claims of any religious or secular system which would speak to some manner of salvation for mankind is bankrupt of any validity, is bankrupt of any truth, is bankrupt for this reason, because it has no means by which to solve man's biggest problem. Sin. No other religious system, no other secular system, no matter what salvation they preach, they do not have the means by which they solve the problem of sin. So what do they do instead? They deny the problem of sin. Or they deny the reality that God is just and must judge sin. Neither one of these works within a truth context. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the history of mankind, only one message, only one man, only one action has ever managed to express a true solution to the problem of sin and its consequences upon the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the only solution possible. That's the only one that makes sense. That's the only one that works. That's the only one that covers sin, that deals with sin, that can both judge sin and justify the ungodly. Every other solution is empty, seeking loopholes and end-arounds for a problem which can have no other solution than that someone who is righteous must die for them. And so God in love sent someone to die for me. So God in love sent someone to die for you and his name is Jesus and he was sinless and he was killed and God took my sin and placed it on him so that if I, by faith, will accept that I can't do anything to get myself to heaven, that I can't earn it, that I can't be worthy of it, but if I will instead say Jesus is worthy, if I will cry the same cry that the elders cried, worthy is the lamb, that the angels cried, worthy is the lamb that was slain. If I will acknowledge, confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. This is the message of the gospel, for by grace are ye saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no name but Jesus. There's no name that is worthy of honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom and might. There is no other name for no one else has died for us. No one else has paid the price. No one else has earned it. John was in the throne of God, surrounded by the seraphim and the elders, and the question arose, who is worthy? And no one was worthy. And John wept until it's pointed out, no, the lamb is worthy. And only the lamb. The Buddha is not worthy. Muhammad is not worthy. Any secular system is not worthy. Your government is not worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. He is worthy and only he is worthy. Only he can save. Only he has earned the right. 
Jesus took upon us our curse, our death, our judgment. He is alone worthy to save. Number two, he alone is worthy to judge. The day Jesus died, the sins of every man and woman and child were paid for. Jesus was made our Savior, but he was also made worthy to be our judge. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If men will not place themselves under the mercy of God by grace through faith, then they are by default placing themselves under the wrath of God and His judgment. At the name of Jesus, Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen one day because Christ is worthy to judge. The scroll that is about to be opened in Revelation 6, as each one of those seals is popped, we are going to see judgments fall upon the earth. This is the scroll of the judgments of God. And only one man is worthy to open it because only one man is worthy to judge because only one man has earned the right, and that is Jesus Christ the righteous. And it is unto this end that we are reminded that everything that takes place in this book, the suffering and the destruction both the natural outcome of a world of people who have rejected their creator and not only rejected him, but rejected him with vehemence and determination. And he is worthy. One final point. Only Christ is worthy to save. Only Christ is worthy to judge. Finally, only Christ is worthy of exaltation. I'm going to read Psalm 2 to you. I'm going to give you the entire psalm. It's a prophetic psalm speaking of the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, relating Him to the kingdoms of this world. And Psalm 2 says this, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. That would be the kings of the earth. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. That anger is coming. And all who are in the way of that anger will perish in that way. To that end, the blessing from national to individual rests upon those who trust in Him. What we're reading about in Psalm 2, you can read about in Isaiah 40 and John 5 and Philippians 2, so many other places in our Bible. When we read about the exaltation of God, when we read about the glory of God, when we, we read about him being high and lifted up. That's what Revelation is about. That's what this book is about. Again, it's interesting to talk about the timing and when and what and all, but, but that's all secondary to this very real concept that what the revelation of Jesus Christ is about is about Jesus who is worthy taking his, the glory that's due unto his name. And if, 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 he, if it won't be given to him so that he can bless us for giving it to him, he'll get it anyway because he is worthy. And so the call for us, again, as we step back into the text, next week we'll be in Revelation 6, we'll be getting into the, 
the judgments of God. We'll be getting into timing and all these things again. Let's reorient our minds again on what we're about here. What are we studying? Why, why does this matter? The times and, 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 and the order and all of that, that's, that's fine and good. But what we're really about here is Jesus. His vindication. And then the call, which we'll particularly see at the end in Revelation 22, to get on his side. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.